Hello and welcome to Locked On Women's Basketball, Episode 2. I'm your host, Howard Magdal. Really happy to be here with you this afternoon. want to talk to you a little bit about, uh, first, the ways in which you can follow us. You follow us on Twitter, at LockedOnWBB. I would also encourage you to go ahead and subscribe to us on iTunes. And please go ahead and like us on Facebook, Locked On Women's Basketball, so you can get immediate updates every time we have new shows. We should have a couple a week. And really looking forward to talking to the best and the brightest stars, players, coaches, media, and historical figures in the world of women's basketball. Uh, and to that end, I have with us uh, today Gabriella Levine, who is a wonderful basketball writer. You've seen her work over at Vice Sports. She is essentially an encyclopedia of women's basketball. Uh, I always learn more when I talk to her, and she is here uh, to have a conversation with me about the upcoming college basketball season, which begins in earnest on November 11th. Uh, so, Gab, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Howard. Absolutely. I mean, look, the, the fact of the matter is there is a very unpredictable season ahead of us, and that is extremely exciting. I guess the place I would want to start is when we talk about some of the top players in the country. ESPNW had, I, I thought, a really terrific list uh, of the 25 best in the country, but I also found it notable where some of the players were. Uh, it uh, served as a reminder to me, the great Imani Boyette earlier this week tweeted out the fact that she was uh, very low on that list. Imani, of course, uh, had a tremendous senior season with Texas, went on to be uh, arguably the best non-Mariah Jefferson, Brianna Stewart rookie in the league. So it's worth remembering that these lists are only uh, guides as we figure it out. But uh, let's start with uh, the person who was number six on the list, someone who we both thought uh, should have been higher in Kelsey Plum, a University of Washington friend of the show and uh, our first interview. Uh, Gab, t tell me a little bit about your thoughts on Plum. Well, I think that I would start off by echoing what you said. I think that ESPN did a good job with this list because the situation that we're in for the first time in maybe four years is that we don't have a, a Brianna Stewart to point to and say that's the best player in the country. And so it's really anyone's race. Um, there's no right or wrong here. But I think I, I do disagree a bit about putting Kelsey Plum at the number six spot on this list. For me, she's easily a top three player, if not a top two player. And I think that what, what a lot of people are saying this year, and I agree with it, is that Kelsey Mitchell is one of the best guards in the country. And that because of that, Ohio State could be in a really good position to make a tournament run. But I think that I, you know, Howard, I think we got to put into context what Kelsey Plum's story really is. This is a player who in three seasons put an entire program on her back. I mean, she walked in her freshman year and coach Mike neighbors pointed to her and said, you're the captain of this team. And we've got to look at how, how far she's come in those three years. She took Washington to its first ever final four. And that's quite the accomplishment. So when I look at the five players who were listed before her. We've got Asia Wilson at the number one spot, Brianna Turner at the number two spot, Kelsey Mitchell at the number three spot, 
Shatori Walker Kimbrough at the number four spot and Nina Davis at the number five spot. None of those players did what Kelsey Plum did last season, which was bring her team to the final four. I, I mean, it's a huge point. And that idea that Mike Neighbors made her a captain her freshman year is such a remarkable fact in and of itself. She's essentially been asked to be a combo guard, a an off-the-ball guard, a creator, and a leading scorer for this team from day one. And so for her to do that and lead them to the Final Four last year, I think it's really significant. And and look, Kelsey Mitchell is a remarkable player. And, and I want to nail down a list with you, actually, of where we would rank everyone. And, and they're both wonderful. And we'll be saw, uh, speaking to Kelsey Mitchell next week for the podcast as well. But the fact that Kelsey Plum has done this already at a program where they weren't having the kind of success that they're having now. The fact that she took ownership of building the program, I think is really significant. And then when you look at, you know, I know we talk about the stats and we have different opinions about how seriously to take the stats, but Kelsey Plum's efficiency is so significant, despite the fact that she's playing nearly every minute of every game. And despite mm-hmm. the fact that she is giving a tremendous amount of effort on the defensive end too. I, I spoke to her a little bit about this, but let's not lose sight of the fact that she had 2.3 steals per game last year. So this is someone who makes her presence felt at both ends. It's very hard when you combine resume and expectations to imagine five players ahead of her uh, as we move into this season. Kelsey Mitchell might be one of them, especially if you think that she has the type of surrounding players at Ohio State. Um, I, I, know, I know Coach McGuff talked about the fact that this may be his best team ever. Uh, just the same, this is an individual player list. And I'm not sure, is there someone you would have put ahead of Kelsey Plum at number one? I think that the player that I would be looking at at number one is the player that was listed, which is Asia Wilson. Hmm. She is the only one in my mind right now who would probably rank over Kelsey Plum. And the reason that I say this, I think that Brianna Turner is a fabulous, fabulous player. And I expect to see really big things from her this season. But I'm just not too sure how quickly she's going to come out and have an impact with the recent injury that she's had. One thing that did really stick out to me, though, is I was reading an article this morning about the fact, I mean, we know that Notre Dame has always run a Princeton offense. I mean, they've been running it, Mm -hmm. I think, since Ruth Riley. But they're looking at Brianna Turner this season, and they're saying, you know, we've, we've got to run the offense through her. We have to make her the centerpiece. So we're not really going to rely on the equality and ball movement maybe that the Princeton offense would traditionally provide. And so it, it's re- I think it's close between Asia Wilson, Kelsey Plum, and Brianna Turner of who we're going to call the best player in the country. And this just goes back to what I said earlier, which is just the fact that it's anyone's race. Any one player can really come out here and prove themselves. And I think that that's a terrific, terrific thing that we have that opportunity this season because we really didn't have it in the past four seasons. And, you know, what's interesting with Asia Wilson, you you look at her numbers. She was 
a tremendously effective player last year, you know, uh, on the on the offensive glass, on the defensive glass. Average 16.1 points per game, but, you know, she did it in 27 minutes per game. And so, again, mm-hmm. if you're talking about sort of the individual impact that you have on a game, mm-hmm. her impact mm-hmm. is very significant, but it is for two-thirds minutes-wise of the game. And right. so, you know, who the best player is, is dictated not just by how effective that player is when she is on the court, but also how often she's on the court. And that brings us to Turner as well, who is coming back from an injury. And like you Mm -hmm. pointed out, and it's a really good point, is a bit of a square peg in a round hole if we're talking in terms of somebody who is best situated to have the greatest individual impact. You know, I talked to Muffet McGraw uh, at ESPN uh, Women's Basketball Media Day about this. Why the guards over and over again, do so well at Notre Dame, whether you're talking mm-hmm. to, you know, about Skylar Diggins, about Jewel Lloyd, uh, and, and even into the present. And she pointed out the Princeton offense. The Princeton offense right. arguably is making Lindsey Allen, who is a very talented player, look even better than perhaps she otherwise would. Now, that's a chicken and egg thing. You also might be looking mm-hmm. at a situation where the Princeton offense is making Lindsay Allen into that better player, at which point she is a better player. But just the same, the question of whether that structure is going to allow Turner to be the dominant player in college basketball is really an open question. I agree with that. I agree with that. And one other thing that I would point out here about, I guess, who's really going to emerge as the best. One thing that sticks out to me with Kelsey Plum, when we look at, let's look at Asia Wilson last season. Who else did she have on that team that she could really, really depend on? She had Tiffany Mitchell. Mm -hmm. And Tiffany Mitchell is now gone this season since gone to the WNBA. And so it, it, it continuously reminds me of the fact that when you look at the other four players that Kelsey Plum is on the court with, I think that she does an incredible job of getting everyone else involved, but knows when to call her number. And I think that in the past three seasons, she has had to carry a bigger burden than any of the other five players that are listed before her on this list. There's no question about it. And it also goes back to the real question. Are we talking about the best player or are we talking about the most valuable player? And does that change anything? I I, I will just say, you know, in terms of that list, and we we really should not uh, miss Shatori Walker-Kimbrough when we're talking about it as well. Uh, Something that I think about when I think about the best players is efficiency. And mm-hmm. so uh, Walker Kimbrough, for me, someone who not only scored as much as she did last year, but the number that I can't get over is that she shot 54.5% from three-point percentage. She was a better-than-break-even proposition from three-point range as a junior. And so th- that alone is remarkable to me. But it's also a reason why, and, and you know that she is a favorite of mine, Bree Jones, uh, is someone, yes. I think she was 16th on the list, I think has to be higher. Someone who is 
just a monster on the offensive glass, someone who's a tremendous interior defender, but also she's going to set in all likelihood the Big Ten all-time record for field goal percentage. This is someone who finds a way to score against everyone. And the thing that stuck out to me when I saw her in person when they were playing Connecticut and Maryland last year is really the only team that gave Connecticut a real scare. Uh, they, they were the only team that, within the last five minutes of a game against Connecticut last year, had a chance to beat them. And in fact, within three, if memory serves, with just over a minute to go. Well, Bree Jones going against uh, Brianna Stewart, who um, people may be aware of as a fairly decent player, managed to go nine for 11 from the field. Uh, and that, to me, might have been the single greatest accomplishment by an individual player last year who didn't happen to play play her home games at stores. So it's worth keeping in mind that Bree Jones should be higher on that list, in my opinion, as well. I agree with that as well. And I think the question mark for me with Maryland this season, correct me if I'm if I'm. into that team oh you know what yeah, so we, I, lo- we lost you a little bit we lost you at correct me if I'm wrong so correct me if I'm wrong but I think that they have a lot of freshmen coming into that team this year gotcha. I think that they have six I, I believe it was six and so the, the question mark for me is how they're going to gel as a te- team early and if they're going to get going as early as maybe some of these other teams will it, it's a really good point. And not, you know, they have six and it's six of the top 100. Uh, you know, Brenda brought in what most people believe to be the very best uh, recruiting class in the country. But part of that is going to mean, like you said, having a freshman point guard and a very talented freshman point guard. But you contrast that with Connecticut. Uh, they have a very talented freshman point guard in Crystal Dangerfield, but she's not starting. Uh, to start the right. year. Uh, effectively, uh, Kia Nurse is going to be the point guard running that offense. Uh, I talked to Kia a little bit about that last week. It was interesting. Kia was saying that effectively this had been her role with the Canadian national team. So it was a pretty seamless transition to move over from the two spot where she had been playing next to Mariah Jefferson over the last couple of years. But asking, and in Maryland, and, and this is a good segue actually to Maryland and really to Connecticut as well. Asking a freshman point guard to take you deep into the NCAA tournament is asking a lot and perhaps asking too much. Uh, although I guess Mariah Jefferson did that as a freshman, but all freshman point guards are not Mariah Jefferson. Uh, let, let's talk about Connecticut, though. And what do you see as this team's ceiling going into the season? And what are your biggest questions about them? I think that going into this season, Connecticut is just going to be a mystery until we see them get going those first couple of games. I'm not too sure what we can expect from them, but I will say, I will put out there, I think that this is a team that's capable of going to the Final Four, that's certainly capable of winning another national championship. I mean, I don't think that anyone can discount Connecticut. But to your point here, Howard, I think there are so many question marks on this team. One of them 
is inside presence. We've lost Brianna Stewart. We've lost Morgan Tuck. Who's going to step up there? But the biggest question mark for me is who's going to take over as point guard. Now, Howard knows this about me. I put a pretty big emphasis on the effectiveness of point guards. Yes, very and true. Rightfully is, so. This is true. Yeah. And I think that what we've seen in the past year is that we've we've sort of had a nice transition from Bria Hartley in 2014 to Mariah Jefferson. Yeah. Now, Mariah Jefferson had a tough transition herself. She didn't get going perhaps as quick as Coach Oriyama would have liked her to. She couldn't really get her feet under her in the beginning, but she did have Bria Hartley to look to for guidance. And so the question for me is we have Sanaya Chong. She's a senior. She perhaps doesn't have as, as much experience as she would like, but I think that this is a player that Coach Oriyama really has to look to in the beginning and hope that she can stay consistent. And I, I've read some of the interviews that he's given. He seems to have some confidence in her early on. And so I think that the key for UConn is to have someone in that point guard position who can really take the reins. But to your point as well, Kia Nurse is a player who's very capable of doing this. And so the question is, will Coach Ariama want to put Kia Nurse at the one position because she's probably, if I'm looking at this right now, the most reliable person to start out. And then after that, I think it's a question of how long it's going to take Crystal Dangerfield to step up as well. Well, so, so, so I mean, like, let's let's de deconstruct that because there's a couple of interesting things there and, and I don't disagree with anything you said. But what I am fascinated to see, and we'll get some early tests, you know, UConn plays... Florida State on the 14th, they play Baylor on the 17th, and the idea that Kia Nurse is running the point makes some sense. You know, Chan is a terrific off-ball shooter. In fact, it was a three that mm -hmm. she made that helped uh, since the Maryland game. But will mm -hmm. she be running the point, or will Kia be running the point? If Kia's running the point, you run the risk of putting additional responsibilities on someone who you may need to be your leading scorer. There aren't a lot of obvious number one scorers on Connecticut this year. You know, Katie Lou Samuelson is someone who I think very highly of, who may in time be that, uh, still only a sophomore. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see just how ready she is to assume that role. Is Gabby Williams really a number one scorer? She's a very talented player. And there's so much unknown about these players, but we know for a fact that Kia Nurse can be that player because Kia Nurse has been that player for Team Canada. In fact, the last time that Brianna Stewart and Mariah Jefferson uh, lost as teammates came in the Pan Am Games back in 2015, playing against a Kia Nurse-led Team Canada uh, that went out and won. I think Kia Nurse scored 30 in that game. So it's interesting, and you're right. It, it, it differs from the Maryland issue where, all right, Destiny Slocum is... From day one, it appears going to be the starting point guard and Brenda Freeze is handing her the ball and letting her run with it. The Connecticut succession could be more similar to the pattern that we saw with Bria Hartley to Mariah, but exactly how fast it happens 
and how quickly Crystal Dangerfield can take those reins will have a lot to do with how much it frees up Kia Nurse to be that swing player, that combo guard, uh, as she described herself mm-hmm. to me, I am a combo one. Well, for her to be a combo one, she needs her teammates to be able to allow her to do it. Yeah, it's it's going to be so interesting to me to see who's really going to be the point guard in the first half of the season versus the second half of the season. And Howard, I don't think that we've really ever seen a UConn team like this one. Hmm. I was trying to think of it earlier and I just can't remember a time, certainly from 2005 to 2007, they had a bit of a drought. They didn't make it to the final four. And then they reemerged with Maya Moore in 2008. UConn has always really been defined generationally by iconic players. Mm -hmm. Diana Taurasi, Maya Moore, Brianna Stewart. And so I question where this team will fit in, I think, in the narrative of UConn overall. I mean, in 2000 and in 2002, you had pretty much all-star lineups, you know, all Americans across the board. And so it's, it's really something that we haven't seen in a long time from UConn, perhaps since that 2005 to 2007 drought. But I think to that point, I read that Coach Ariyama said this. I, he said something along the lines of, I remember what it was like to have that, and I hope that I can deal with it better this time. <laughs> and so it's going to be interesting to see if he'll be able to. And I think that the, the team does have the pieces. And I think you mentioned who's going to be the leading scorer here. For me, I really have my eye on Katie Lou Samuelson. I really think Damn. she has the ability to step up on this team. We saw it big time in the second half of last season. She definitely started slow. She couldn't find her shot, but she found it eventually. So it was interesting to me that. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say to your point about 05 through 07, it's very specifically. When uh, when we were speaking to Coach OREM over the last couple of weeks, a couple of times actually uh, in the media, that's the pattern he mentioned. And it does seem as if he's almost relishing the opportunity to be back in the mix. And instead of being that mm-hmm. team above the way he was for four years at Connecticut and then uh, this summer uh, with USA Basketball. So I think you're right that that is really the parallel within UConn history. The point about Katie Lou Samuelson, though, when Gina Oriemba won Coach of the Year last year by via the AP, there were a lot of people who were skeptical of that, uh, given that the players she had went one, two, and three in the WNBA draft. And I understand that argument, uh, quite frankly, but it is worth looking at what Katie Lou Samuelson did from the start of her season where she was essentially a straight up spot up shooter and probably would have been just that and little more at most programs where you would have parked her out by the three point line, let her hit those shots. Very few people are blocking that shot when she is six foot three and leaving it there. But that was fundamentally not what she is by the end of the year last year. And so what I want to know 
is you talked about her being a number one scorer. She's going to get the Brianna Stewart comparisons. That's going to happen over and over again. She overlapped with her. The two are friends. They're potential inside-outside players, 6-3 in her case, 6-4 in Stewart's case. What does she do on the defensive end and on the boards to be able to match some of the production of of Brianna Stewart? It's not an easy answer. For one thing, because Stewart, and that's a different conversation for a different day, is a generational talent, a generational player in a host of different ways, as you know, as we've seen both at UConn and you know now in Seattle. But how close she comes will tell us a lot about how much she's able to replicate what Stewart did. And UConn needs that. You and Gino is not asking her, and no one can ask her to be Stewart, but she needs to come as close as she can in order to replace what Connecticut lost. Right. And I think the key here is what you just said, is that no one can ask her to be Brianna Stewart. I hope that what she does first and foremost is puts her hands over her ears if she starts (laughs) hearing those comparisons. Because... Yes, is Stewie one of the best players that UConn has ever seen, if not the best? Yes, absolutely. Katie Lou Samuelson should not be expected to live up to that standard because Katie Lou Samuelson is an amazing player in her own right. And the question really is, how is she going to fill in the blanks? And should it be her responsibility on her own? What's interesting to me is that we saw in, I think, their second exhibition game that he, Coach Oriyama, sat her and didn't play her until, I think, with like five minutes left in the third quarter. And he said after the game that players like Katie Lou Samuelson can have a tendency to coast a bit through the preseason. So you can already see that he's doing what he always does to players he sees have the most potential right he's already on her case yeah it's the he's surest sign riding her on that. it's the surest sign that she has the most upside is the the extent to which gino went out and did it publicly i i, I wrote about this actually in a piece that will be in vice sports uh coming up later this week or early next week but gino did the same thing with crystal dangerfield Uh, We were at AAC Media Day. Someone had asked an unrelated question, nothing to do with Crystal Dangerfield, nothing to do with point guard play. And he went out of his way to use as his illustrated example. He likes to have these like one man shows where he talks about, I had this conversation and I said this. And he said, I just basically like the women's basketball version of a Bronx tale. And so he he went out of his way to say, (laughs) I said to Crystal Dangerfield, if you could even a little bit do these three things, then we could stop missing Mariah Jefferson so much. And all that said to me was, all right, he sees Dangerfield as a big part of the future as well. But look, everything that we said are questions that UConn didn't face. And it's just representative of the fact that there is parity in women's college basketball this year. Uh, the the likes of we haven't seen since the vet, you know, since since Brianna Stewart was in high school. And so I guess my question to you is, number one, when you look at that list, how many teams do you see as capable of winning the national title? 
And do you think that that is something that is better for the Dama College basketball right now? Well, to the first point, I'm not sure if we can even put a number on that. Yeah. I'm not sure if we can even quantify how many teams there are out there now that are capable of winning a national championship. Think of the tournament last year. Think of what we saw. It was anyone's game on any given night unless you were playing UConn. And this year, there is no unless you were playing UConn. Mm-hmm. You could make one could make the argument that the race is wide open now that the big three at UConn, Stewie, Tuck, and Jefferson have graduated. And and by the way, I'll just I, note it if if you want to quantify it, the AP top twenty five has four separate teams uh, earning first place votes in the preseason poll: mm-hmm. Notre Dame, Baylor, Connecticut, and South Carolina. USA Today coaches right. poll has five: Connecticut, Notre Dame, mm-hmm. South Carolina, Baylor, and Texas. And again, you look mm-hmm. at something like Washington, 17th in the AP top 25, 15th in the USA Today coaches poll. Well, in that case, you had Kelsey Plum take a team on her back and, and obviously didn't do it all by herself, but took that team within two wins of winning it all. So the idea that a singular player like that, like a Kelsey Mitchell, quite frankly, you, you know, on down the line could come in and have an NCAA tournament for the ages uh, doesn't seem like a crazy idea at all. Absolutely not. Look who look, look who was in the final four last year, Washington, Syracuse, Oregon State, Connecticut. Did we pretty much know that Connecticut was going to walk away with the win? Yes, but we did not think by any means that we were going to see Washington, Syracuse, and Oregon State in the Final Four. Now, well, I, I mean, you know, if Oregon State brought those players back, I'm really curious to see what they are uh, with Sidney Weiss, essentially a one-man, uh, one-woman show, rather. But if they brought back Ruth Hamblin, I, I, it just would have been fascinating to see because that team, I think, was head and shoulders above every other team other than Connecticut last year. And that's, that's an interesting point, Howard, because I think that I don't think that there's a very clear front runner here for which is the best team in the nation because everyone lost someone. Mm -hmm. South Carolina lost Tiffany Mitchell. It's obvious who UConn lost. You can even say Washington lost to Leah Walton. Exactly. Notre Dame lost Madison Cable, who I think was such an important component of that team last year on the perimeter with shooting. No question. But if I and if Texas I still, lost to Monty Boyette, let's not forget, of right, course. And right, and I would course. be remiss not to also mention Jamie Wisner if we're talking about Oregon State. But please go on. Right. Well, I mean, you got to look at a team like Baylor. They still have their centerpiece. We didn't mention her earlier, so mm-hmm. we have to mention her now, Nina Davis. She's brought them, I think, three times, correct me if I'm wrong, to the Elite Eight. Yep. So yep. she is still there. Um, um, can, and I, can I just I just have to take a brief moment to talk about my love for Nina Davis's game, for the fact that she's five foot 11 and is very comfortable going inside Understood she had to expand her game, has worked diligently, and you've seen the results on her mid-range jump shot. And now with the recruiting class that Baylor brought in, and, uh, and and you want to talk about a freshman that I'm excited to see is their freshman center, Lauren Cox. The idea that Nina Davis can play functionally her game 
this year for that Baylor team. That is going to be absolutely fascinating. Nina Davis just intrigues me with everything that she's able to do. She's fascinating to me at 5'11". She's undersized, but she is so effective. I mean, she'll have to be a three-point shooter uh, at the next level. When you look at what the WNBA is and where it's going, I've talked to Nina about this. She knows this, but she needs to become a three-point shooter because essentially what you need her to be at the next level is a Morgan Tuck type player. And she's not going to do it without the three-point shot. Uh, Another comparison you can make is Swin Cash, but Swin Cash played in a different WNBA. Swin Cash played in a WNBA that did not emphasize the long-distance game to the extent the league does A, now, and B, likely will going forward. So it, it will be fascinating to see, but she'll get a chance to do it this year at Baylor. I think, Howard, that we'll see that her skills translate into the league. I think that's going to be a question mark. People will doubt it, but I think that she will. She she also reminds me, you talked about Swin Cash. She reminds me of Swin Cash. She reminds me of Alicia Clark oh, from that's Seattle. A great comp. And the, I mean, it's maybe not one that people think of often, but we've seen Alicia Clark on the Seattle Storm really step up despite being undersized. She bangs around inside and she's not, I don't even think that she breaks six foot and she's still very effective for that team in her role. And Alicia Clark also has the outside shot. She can shoot from the perimeter when she's called upon to do so. Mm-hmm. And I think that Nina Davis can, if it's the right team, she can definitely fit on that team. You know, the another person who intrigues me, to put it mildly, is Diamond DeShields of Tennessee. And I'm curious what your expectations are for Diamond at this point in her career. Obviously, he's moved around a bit. And Tennessee, until the tournament, did not have the kind of season uh, that they are, quite frankly, used to. And yet they turned it on. Oh, no question about it. They went on this run. And... I think the question is going to be, did that show us that Tennessee has finally developed the chemistry and the comfort with one another that they've been looking for? And Diamond DeShield's path is just so interesting. Um, It's interesting to see her transition and if she can really fit well and adapt to Tennessee. Did that season, did last season give her the time that she needed to sort of get the jitters out and be ready to come back this season, ready to go. And that's that's a team I think that not a lot of people are talking about. They're, where are they on um, this poll, Howard? I think that they're they're a lot further down than they are. They're, yeah, they're thirteenth past thirteenth AP, fourteenth USA Today coaches poll. And and you're right, there's thirteenth, yep. But there's so much that's unknown, right? Because in in Diamond to Shield, you have someone with a broad base of skills, but the numbers have not necessarily correlated to it. Uh, And I I talked to her a little bit about it at Media Day, and her emphasis in her mind was to bring her presence to every single game consistently on both the offensive and the defensive ends. So I'm really curious to see what that means in terms of individual impact. Uh, Is this something where... Uh, her perimeter shooting becomes a defining characteristic. Is it is it work around the basket? Is it is it shot blocking? There there's really no 
part of Diamond to Shield's game that it would surprise you to see, or that it would surprise me to see anyway, get uh, become elite, but she still has to do it. Right, and the question for her, I think, is going to be consistency. Is she going to be able to show up game after game after game and be firing it on all cylinders? Yeah. And last season, we didn't see her do that, and I think that that was just an effect of the transition that she made to Tennessee. I think it was her getting accustomed to playing under a new coach with a new team, with new teammates. And I think that she'll, she'll get started quicker this season and we'll see her hit the ground running, hopefully. At the risk of thinking about a narrative, it would be quite the tribute uh, to Coach Summit to see them make some noise this year. I, I do think they'll be in the conversation. Let, let's, let's get down to it. Let's put ourselves on the spot here without seeing the bracket, without seeing the teams ahead of time, uh, to know that this is going to sound silly in retrospect, I'm sure. Let's predict. F what's your final four? Uh, I will go first. You go second. How does that sound? All right. Sounds All right. good. My final four. I have Connecticut in that final four. I have South Carolina in that final four. I have Maryland in that final four. And I have Baylor in that final four. So I think that I'm going to put Notre Dame in hmm. and I'm going to take out Maryland. And okay. I think, I think that the reason I'm going to do this is because over the years, the team that has always stood out, if it wasn't UConn has hmm. been Notre Dame. This is the only team that can say that we didn't just beat UConn once. We didn't just beat them twice. We beat them seven times since 2011. They're the only team that can say that. And if I had to put a number on it, I think that I would put Notre Dame as the number one seed going in early. And I think that they're at right now, right, at number one they in are. the AP Top 25 poll. Mm -hmm. And the question for me is, are they going to be able to – pull those upsets if you can call if you can even call it an upset over UConn this year so one other point that I wanted to bring up Howard about Notre Dame when we look at their matchup against UConn last year in December they ran with UConn I think not for a whole game but in a half better than almost any other team that I saw with the exception of um, USF mm -hmm. they they had an impact on the perimeter and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Will they have that same impact on the perimeter this year with the with placing Brianna Turner as the centerpiece? It's definitely a question, but they have the Mabry sisters who can certainly shoot lights out on the perimeter. And they, they gave UConn a run. I think that they only lost by 10 points last December, and that was without Brianna Turner on the floor. She didn't play that game. So I think that Notre Dame is a team to certainly watch going into the tournament. I 100% agree, and let's get to the topic to expand on that a little bit. Teams we should be paying attention to as we move beyond, let's say, the obvious title contenders. Who would you like to bang the drum for as who we should be paying attention to that perhaps some are not? Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back Kelsey Plum up on this one, and I'm going to go to the Pac-12. She said it on media day that there is an East coast bias. And I agree with her on that. Uh, she's going into the season with a chip on her shoulder. And I think that all of us,
can no longer say that we can ignore the Pac-12. The Pac-12 is perhaps one of the most competitive conferences that we have now. And so you look at these teams, at Washington, Arizona State, Oregon State, Stanford, UCLA, these are all teams that we need to be paying attention to. So there are three teams I'm going to bang the drum for very briefly. Uh, the first, leaving aside that I 100% agree with you, and as the father of young children, uh, it was uh, an unfortunate combination of factors that led me to late on Friday nights, times I should be catching up on sleep. Instead, what I found myself doing was tuning into Pac-12 basketball because there were so many good teams last year. I expect the same to be happening this year, uh, and I expect uh, more sleepless nights, uh, especially on Friday nights. But specifically, the team that was picked to win the Pac-12 is UCLA by both media and the fellow coaches. And so when I look at what Corey Close has assembled there, she had two years ago the best recruiting class. And so now that Jordan Canada-led roster uh, is maturing. I saw that team lose what was a very winnable game against Texas in the Sweet 16. Corey Close is one of the best coaches in America. I don't expect that to happen again this year and could easily see UCLA not only make it to the Elite Eight, but perhaps go even further. Uh, it would not surprise me in the least if we saw them in Dallas uh, come next spring. The two others that I do not want us to miss out on, though, both play in the Big, in the big Ten. One of them is Michigan State. Uh, I want to specifically focus on Tori Janoska, whose game is remarkably fun and diverse, Offensive end, defensive end, someone who's capable of absolutely going off. You saw it over and over again. And I am really curious to see. She's going to have to make up for a lot of what Ariel Powers did for that team last year. I think she's up to the task. And I think they're going to be better than people would necessarily expect having lost Powers. And then the other is Jessica Shepard over in Nebraska. Uh, Jessica Shepard was a double-double machine last year as a freshman and so to see her you know with a new coach in nebraska with the opportunity to be the centerpiece uh, in a way she really wasn't necessarily on that nebraska team last year but also one year further removed from a significant knee injury uh, that cost her most of her senior year of high school jessica shepherd is a really skilled six foot four inside outside player and someone who uh, is going to be among the best in the country, was uh, preseason all Big Ten. And if you like the matchups of sophomores, there's this really great early season matchup between Cal and Christina Nidway and Nebraska and Jessica Shepard. I believe that's on December 4th. That is a game that is circled on my calendar. But do not miss the opportunity to watch Shepard play if you get a chance. And Howard, this just goes to the point, everything that you just said, what I just said with paying attention to the Pac-12, don't sleep on any teams this year. You know, it, the two of us just picked four teams that we might see make it all the way to the Final Four in the NCAA tournament. But it's really impossible to call it so early, and it's probably going to be impossible to call it throughout the tournament based on what we saw last year. So oh, going I'll give into you one this, more I think it's anyone's game. 
You're 100% right. I'll give you one more sleeper. I cannot uh, live with myself if I don't point out St. Louis uh, and what Lisa Stone has built there after coming from Wisconsin. Uh, Jackie Kempf, out of all the players I saw last year in person, Mariah Jefferson was the fastest to the hoop. Jackie Kempf was second. Uh, she's Atlantic mm-hmm. 10 preseason player of the year. She is only a junior. She is electrifying to watch. And any chance you get mm-hmm. to watch the Billikens, they came out of nowhere last year to tie for the pre- the regular season title. Uh, I believe they should have made it to the NCAA tournament. They were effectively a win or two away from having the tournament resume to get in. I don't anticipate any such problem this year. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what Kempf does if she gets the chance on the national stage. And you called me the encyclopedia of women's basketball. <laughs> and rightfully so. Well, listen, Gabrielle Levine, <laughs> I always enjoy talking to you about any subject, especially this, which we both care about so much. So thank you so much for being uh, a part of Locked On Women's Basketball. Thank you so much for having me, Howard. I look forward to this upcoming season. Likewise. Well, and and I will once again remind all of you uh, who are listening, please subscribe to us on iTunes. Go ahead and follow us on Twitter at LockedOnWBB. Go ahead and like us on Facebook, Locked On Women's Basketball. We're going to be doing about two of these a week. And I look forward to having these conversations, sharing them with all of you. Uh, go ahead and rate us on iTunes, too, if you like us. Um, I guess if you don't, I, I have no problem with that either. But I would more strongly encourage you to if you do. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Lockdown Women's Basketball. I'm Howard Magdal, wishing you a lovely weekend.